have two uh, passages um, today. Uh, Genesis 22 will be our first one, and then I'll skip over to Luke chapter 1. But first, beginning in Genesis chapter 22, we'll be in verses 15 through 19. And hear now the word of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. The word of the Lord. And now you can flip over to the gospel according to St. Luke. We will be in chapter 1. And I will read beginning in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, that is John the Baptist's father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The word of the Lord. And again, our Lord and our God, we thank you for your holy word. And we thank you for the message of salvation that you have given to us. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for whom all the promises of God have now found their yes and amen. What a precious truth for us as Christians this Advent season. And in Christ's name we pray. And amen. Well, arguably, the most comforting verse in all of the scriptures, just practically... Monday morning, Thursday afternoon, wherever you're at, the most comforting verse, perhaps, is Romans 8.28. For we know that for those who love God, all things, all things are working together for good. Yet, often when we are facing afflictions, we, we are not sure what that looks like. We have to see that on the other end if we see it at all in this life. And that's why reading Christian biography can be such an edifying endeavor. It's because we get the benefit often of seeing what they couldn't see in real time by looking back and seeing how God worked all things together for their good. And we see that one place in the life of Englishman William Chatterton Dix. So it was 1865. He was just the age of 29 at that time. He was managing an entire insurance company when a near-fatal illness struck him, and this made him bed-bound for, for months on end. 
And so while he was oppressed with this physical affliction, he ended up falling into a, a deep, deep depression during that time, and an utterly debilitating depression. But in the grace and providence of God, this drove William to dive deeply into the scriptures. What else was he going to do flat on his back for months? And he gave himself to the word of God. And the Holy Spirit caused this, a spiritual renewal, to, to start in his heart that then started to flow out of his fingertips into a collection of Christian poems, one of which I know that you know. He called it the manger throne. But it wasn't until six years later that an editor took three of the stanzas and then set it to music and then published it. And the name that he chose for the now song were the first four words of the first verse, which was, what child is this? And this hymn, of course, has become one of the worldwide staples for Christian hymnody, and it was grown in the Garden of Affliction for William, which we as the Church Universal thank God for. And this is such a potent and stirring hymn, I would argue, because the first two verses don't begin with, with just facts about the Incarnation. Rather, they begin with questions about the Incarnation. And it's questions that we are invited to answer, which, which helps us to re-enchant ourselves as Christians for, for those who live and breathe the gospel and live daily under the reign of the risen Christ. It helps re-enchant us with the unexpected glory of how the life of our Lord Jesus began, with, with the astonishing reality of the Incarnation, that in order to save his people, God Almighty, who made the Milky Way and squirrels and you and everything, that God came to us 2,000 years ago on a place that you could Google Maps if you knew the coordinates as a squirming, tiny, dependent, newborn baby. And his crib was a farm animal's feeding trough. This is an incredible true story that we need to be re-enchanted with. And this is how the story of him fulfilling all of his promises to us would, would begin. And these questions that William poses to us in his songs, if we are paying attention, it's like a bucket of ice water to our face to wake us up again to the glory of the incarnation. And so I want to begin this Advent season by just reading these first two verses and we'll move on then from there. He writes, Bed-bound, afflicted, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthem sweets while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and the angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him, Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. But why lies he in such mean estate, where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christians fear, for sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross will be born for me and for you. So hail, 
Hail, the Word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. And so, the way that we are going to approach these four weeks of Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, is by asking and answering the question that William Chatterton Dix presents with us. Namely, what child is this? What, what ways did the Christ child and Jesus Christ himself fulfill the promises and the prophecies in the Old Testament? And so each week, as we saw here, we'll have an, an Old Testament passage that, that then hyperlinks, as it were, to a New Testament passage and we will go from there. And so in our text today, we ask, what child is this? And the answer, he is the one who delivers us from our greatest enemy. The one who delivers us from our greatest enemy. And today, the reason I chose first the text from Genesis 22 is because that's where we've been in our story of Genesis and this is the next text that we would have been in. And so rather than just picking out a random one of the many prophetic texts that we could have gone to, we actually had the blessing of, of seeing it naturally unfold week one in the very text providentially we've been in. So let's turn to the texts now. So you'll recall this is coming immediately after last week where Abraham passed his final faith exam of being willing to offer up Isaac. And then the Lord intervened, we saw at the last moment, by providing a substitute, by providing a ram instead. And so that, that's why the text begins, the angel of the Lord appeared to him a second time from heaven. So the first time was when the angel said, do not lay a hand on the boy. So this is the second time. And now the Lord is revealing to Abraham the blessing that is going to come to him and through him because of his obedience to the word of God. As, as we love to say here at Pilgrim Hill, there is always blessing on the other side of obedience to the word of God. And we've seen it all throughout Abraham's life and we see it again. And the Lord begins by saying, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Which is interesting because... Anytime God says, I swear to God, it probably is important to listen up. It's, it's a big one. So what does God swear to God about? Well, as I read it, if it sounded familiar, it's because much of it is a restatement of the promises that he already gave to Abraham in chapters 12 and 15, namely that, that an entire nation will, will flow out of him. And more than that, that all the nations then will be blessed from his offspring, yet he adds something new this time, something he hasn't said yet. He, he says, your offspring shall, shall possess, shall grab hold of the gate of his enemies. So he's giving us greater clarity on the blessing. His offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and that means at least two things. One, that Abraham's offspring will have enemies. So this, there are orcs in this story, like in all stories. There are always those who oppose God's people because they oppose God himself. This we know. So Abraham's offspring will have enemies. But the second thing it reveals is that 
their resistance to what God is doing for his people will be futile. That is, rebels against God who have planted their flag in the land of promise will not be able to resist the righteous conquest of the land of promise. Israel will storm the gates of her enemies. She will triumph over her enemies. She will possess the land of promise. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll know that this promise was initially fulfilled in in the book of Joshua with the conquest of Israel over the land of Canaan. It begins with the, the walls of Jericho coming down in Joshua 6 by the praise of the people of God, by the trumpets and the shouting. I love that. And then the conquest goes on from there into northern Canaan. And from there, there there is a season of rest for Israel, having possessed the gates of her enemies. And yet, we know that that fulfillment of the promise would soon fizzle out. Because Israel did not make a complete conquest of her enemies, but let some of them live. And then were given over to Canaan idolatry and cultural compromise. And so, the enemies ended up coming back and taking back the gates and taking Israel into exile. The first verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's from that place and and ransom captive Israel. And though the Lord mercifully would allow a remnant to return to start to rebuild and to reestablish Israel in some measure, She certainly did not fulfill the promise again. She did not possess the gates of her enemy any longer by any stretch. And so as we transition now and and come to the context of Luke 1, things have only gotten worse for Israel. As a nation, she is now under the iron fist of Rome. Even her own political leaders, like King Herod, are thoroughly corrupt and under Caesar's thumb. Her religious leaders, the Pharisees, there were were a a few good apples like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. By and large, they are an entirely rotten lot that is oppressing the people and the land. And so Israel is still looking and longing for the fulfillment of the promise that the Lord made to Abraham, that there will come an offspring who will triumph over her enemies and who will bring them back into the land of promise. And so it's in this context that we encounter Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, as he is understanding more and more who his son is and who he will prepare the way for. And and that's why his song of blessing to God, which interestingly, if if you'll recall, was the first words his mouth had spoken in months soars off the page for us, especially as we've been working through Genesis 22. And it's because through the Holy Spirit, Zechariah is is putting the prophetic pieces together. He now recognizes who his child is and who the child is that is in Mary's womb. Looking at the text, this is the one who would truly redeem his people. Verse 68. Verse 71, who would save them from their enemies. And then to draw the line even clearer, 
This is the one who proved that the Lord was, in verses 73-74, remembering his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness. So what child is this then that is in Mary's womb? He is the one who came to deliver Israel from her enemies, finally. And this is tremendous news. It's it's no reason he, he sings in soaring tones, especially after 400 years of prophetic silence while Israel is waiting and longing who will be the one. And now they know. However, there's still a question that waited to be answered. We know what child this is. He's the deliverer from the enemy. But the question now becomes, well, who is the enemy? Who did he now come to overthrow? Well, you ask a first century Jew that, the answer probably would have seemed so obvious as to have been absurd to even ask in the first place. Obviously, it's Rome. Caesar Augustus, whose shadow has been cast over the whole land. Obviously, it's Pontius Pilate, his his governor, who oppresses us with harsh taxation. Do Do you not see the soldiers all around us? Who is our enemy? Luke 13, 1, speaking of Pilate, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So imagine the mayor of Goodlettsville comes into our sanctuary in 30 minutes, and before I serve communion, he slaughters a few of us. Some of the blood gets in the communion cup. That's, it's hard to imagine something that horrible. And this is what they're complaining to Jesus about what Pilate was doing to them. Who's the enemy? The enemy is pretty obvious. (laughs) The plan is pretty obvious. Rome is the enemy. Our Messiah has come. And so get some disciples, get the word around town, start a movement, and then plan for the Jesus-led overthrow of the emperor. That's the plan. And as Jesus formally began his ministry, things were progressing well. They had thousands now coming to hear Jesus preach whenever he set up shop, preaching about the kingdom coming. Rome is getting nervous, as she should be, because this is the possessor of the enemy's gates. This is the usurper of Israel's enemies gaining a head of steam. And that's why when Jesus starts to explain something to his disciples in Matthew 16, they are utterly befuddled. 21, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I don't think the disciples could even 
hear that last part. What? Be killed. That's impossible that the Messiah would be killed. And so Peter tries to talk some sense into the Lord. And it says, verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And why couldn't this happen to Jesus? Because he was the offspring of Abraham who came to possess the gates of the enemy. You came to storm the gates of Rome, not to be hung on one of their crosses. You came to conquer them as king, not to be crucified as a criminal. I mean, put yourself in their place. This is baffling to them. You are Yeshua, the greater Joshua. Verse 23. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow. So that seems pretty harsh. Calling your most ambitious, most loyal companion Satan? So question, and this is important. Why does Jesus call Peter Satan? Why not just correct the mistake? Or not. Just say, you'll figure it out in a couple weeks. Why does he call him Satan here? And here's why. Because it was very intentional. In calling him Satan, because he rebuked Jesus about going to the cross, Jesus was not so much insulting Peter as he was exposing the true enemy that he came to conquer. Not Caesar yet, but Satan. See, Peter wasn't rebuked because his ambition was too grand and his vision too lofty and his desires too carnal. Rather, he was rebuked because his vision was too small for what the Messiah came to do. Yes, he knew that Jesus meant to save them, but he had a, a small, man-sized view of what Messiah came to accomplish for his people. The bullseye was not set on Rome because he was a far better savior who came to possess the gates, possess the rebel-held dominion of a far more wicked and a far more formidable enemy. Namely, he came for the dark ruler behind every pagan king. He had come for the prince of darkness himself, Satan. And if Peter would have known his Torah a little better, Peter would have known this. And that's because the offspring of Abraham who came to possess the gates of the enemy was also the seed of the woman. And when the seed of the woman would show up, his primary agenda was to crush the head of the seed of the serpent and to dethrone and to defang the dragon, who had been allowed 
as usurper, a temporary reign for the first epoch of the world. But now that was about to come to an end. There was coming a cosmic changing of the guard, as it were. And that's why Jesus says in John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And that's why Christ had to go to the cross. That was the weapon that would finally destroy our greatest enemy. Because on the cross, the two most powerful weapons that Satan uses to torment and oppress and enslave mankind, Christ ripped from his hands and rendered them totally useless. And those two satanic weapons were this, the power of sin and the fear of death. First, the power of sin, the power for Satan to accuse us and to enslave us and to inflame our carnal desires. Christ destroyed because he absorbed all the wrath and all the judgment for that sinned. Colossians 2, 14 through 15. Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And in so doing, catch this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So our enemy tries to mock and accuse us because the guilt and the shame of our sin. And without Christ, those accusations would stick. That weapon would work. He is the accuser because it works. But now because of the cross, our Savior mocks and shames our enemy because he has already paid for that sin debt. And our old man is now dead and gone. So how silly does it look when Satan tries to commend us, condemn us, because that man is buried with Christ. And Christ has triumphed over our enemy and destroyed the weapon of sin that he wields against us. But that's not the only weapon he has. The scriptures also say that Satan possesses the power of death. So power to cause death and power to terrorize people with the fear of their impending death. The power of death. And that's because Jesus got rid of that. Yes, our sins are forgiven, but in our flesh, there still is a wage to pay. And that's death. We, every single one of us is going to die a physical death at some point in life. And so we might be tempted to say, well, isn't that kind of a win for our enemies still? But the answer is an emphatic no. Because through the cross, Christ didn't just put our sin to death, but Christ put death to death. That is, the sting and the power of death is destroyed for the Christian because physical death for us is now just a doorway. It is a threshold leading us out of this fallen world into a world of glory, into the presence of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.9 What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him. And so that's why Paul, like Christ, engages in some holy mockery in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Not mockery of the devil himself, but mockery of death. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory now? Oh, death, where is your sting? So what child is this? Today we see he's the destroyer of our enemy. But not just the church's earthly enemy. Though the scripture is clear, all of them will be subdued as well in time. But our ultimate enemy, Satan and his two cronies of sin and death. They have been vanquished. And Advent means freedom, not just for today, but for all of eternity. Or as it says in an obscure verse of the beloved hymn we sang earlier, O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. From depths of hell your people save and give them victory or the grave. And our Lord and our God 